Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 37, brought to you by acmescience.com. My guest on today's episode is Scott Aronson, professor of computer science at MIT. Our conversation covers how Nintendo can lead you to a career in theoretical computer science, a clear definition of quantum computing and its importance, and finally, why a person would wager $200,000 that a P versus NP proof was false. Here we go! Hello and welcome to Strongly Connect Components. My guest on today's podcast is a professor of electrical engineering computer science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Scott Aronson. Professor Aronson, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Uh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful to have you. Now, I want to get straight down to, to brass tacks here, and I, I have this really important question. What are your ideas on that, that newest P versus NP proof that showed up on Slashdot? talking about the one from this past summer no I, I i was actually i was actually just trying to make a joke about the wonderful faq that you have on your website <laughs> okay because uh you know I, I genuinely wasn't sure i mean there seems to be such a proof every few months or so maybe there was one today that i hadn't heard about but, uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, well it, I, I bring this up because this is uh, perhaps my favorite thing that I found uh, going through things on your website. And it's, it's an FAQ for people who are going to send you an email asking you a question. Now, I did look through this before I sent you the email requesting uh, for this interview. And thankfully, there's nothing about that on there. So I mean, these are things about, uh, did you hear about this new slash dot proof? Uh, I want to join your research committee. Uh, I'm Hello, I'm interested in computer science. Please send me some links to get started. Do you get a lot of emails like this? I do. I mean, I get, uh, you know, one of the neat or interesting things about writing a blog, which I do, is that I hear from all sorts of people who somehow find their way to it. I mean, I hear from high school students who uh, you know, have questions about quantum mechanics, you know, people with ideas for inventions, people with proofs of P versus NP. I actually spend a significant amount of my time just you know, answering everything that I can. Some of it is really gratifying, and you know, I guess the FAQ was just trying to, to make, make jokes about, a, you know, about, about one portion of, of what I get. But I mean, I, I am you know, and, and sort of communicating with relatively wide audience. I mean, I, I think theoretical computer science is never going to have as wide of an audience as, say, let's say, astronomy or something, because it's more abstract. But, you know, there are lots of people who are interested. And one of the great things about uh, living in the Internet age is that we can communicate directly with now, one of the questions in there is, hello, I'm interested in learning about computer science. And that, that brings to my mind... What made you think that yourself at one point? So, for me, it started with wanting to uh, write my own video games. When I was 10 or so, I was addicted to uh, Nintendo, to you know, Mario and Zelda and all these things. And what really fascinated me is that these seemed like simulated worlds. They had uh, creatures in them that actually responded in some fairly complicated way when you, when you did something. And 
I felt like, okay, you know, the universe is serious. There's all these things about, you know, the, about the laws of physics or the speed of light or whatever that I don't really understand. But uh, in, in, inside the Nintendo, here are simulated worlds that someone clearly does understand because they created them. So if I want to understand kind of how a universe is put together, then, you know, this, this would be a good place to start. So I had a dream of creating my own video games some someday, but you know, and I would I would sort of draw them on paper and, and describe them in detail. But how do you take this additional step of you know breathing life into the game of sort of making it real? And I didn't even understand how that could happen in principle. It was a great mystery to me, right? And I just imagine that it involves some sort of complicated engineering, right? Uh, maybe a bunch of people in white lab coats assembling some chip with some complicated machinery, maybe like how you would build a 747 or something. Yeah, I, I didn't know. You know, as I, I think if you talk to a lot of computer scientists, you'll hear a similar story, right, of the day that, that they found out what programming was, right? And, and often it was uh, by by seeing basic. You know, I was at a friend's house and we were playing some uh, spaceship game on his on his Apple 2GS and uh, you know, it was a pretty crappy game. But uh, <laughs> the amazing thing is that he uh, he said to me, "Well, you know, this game is actually written in in basic." I didn't know what that was, but he said, "You know, here is the code of the game." You know, this code was not just some sort of description of the game. Right? It, it is the game. You can change the code and the game will do something different. And that was really a revelation for me. You know, when I got back home, I was actually crying. And, to, you know, to my parents, how could you not have told me about this before? And how will I ever catch up to other kids who have seen this when they were six or seven or something? Right. And I'm already 11. I mean, so then I, of course, I, I tried to make up for lost time. I, you know, wrote all sorts of programs. Then what really fascinated me was, you know, could I someday sort of uh, create a, a new programming language and it may be one that would let you do things that could never be done in, in principle uh, in basic because you know I could see that Apple basic for example was a pretty crappy language you know I still sort of didn't understand about this field of computer science as such that uh, that actually studied these sort of meta questions about you know what pro what sorts of programs can or cannot be written but that's sort of what I was trying to ask about in my in my naive way. And so then it came as a, a further shock to me when I learned about the, the church touring thesis, which says that essentially all, all sufficiently powerful programming languages are equivalent to each other. Okay, anything you can do in one, you can do in any other of them. And furthermore, the threshold for that sort of universality is very, very low, certainly exceeded by Apple Basic. Right, and by almost any other programming language you could write down. And that had actually been discovered, you know, in the 1930s by Alan Turing and by, by a few others, you know, long before people had any actual computers program. Yeah, 75 years ago, Saturday, actually, was the publication yeah, of that paper. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah, so in fact, there was going to be a lot of uh, events happening over the coming year because of this 100-year anniversary of Turing's birth. This is also the 75-year anniversary of his paper. I was, it happens, just involved this, this, this semester in a, uh, a production uh, in, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, of, of Breaking the Code, which is this famous play about Turing's life. So I was speaking to, uh, I wasn't actually acting or anything, I was, but I was speaking to uh, audiences like before and after the play about Turing, so I've been thinking about it lately. 
but yes, you know, I got interested in, in algorithms and sort of just what, what kinds of programs can and can't be written. Uh, I sort of, I, I hated my high school and actually, you know, ended up leaving uh, when I was 15 or so. I, I didn't actually graduate. I got a New York State GED. I ended up going to a place called uh, uh, Clarkson University in upstate New York, uh, and I uh, was there for a year in this program that they had for high school seniors to do to do a year of college. And so that was my first real exposure to to sort of academic computer science, I'd say. And uh, I had an idea about hypertext design, and so I ended up doing a project with a professor there named Chris Lynch who was extremely kind and sort of working with me and, and teaching me the uh, uh, the basics about, you know, how do you prove something is NP-complete and, you know, all these, these things that I'd never really encountered before. So so he really played a big role in my, my getting into this field. Actually, the, uh, the summer before that, another thing that played a role is that I went to math camp. Actually, this, this was in 1996, so the summer that it started. Math camp uh, continues to be held every summer. It's an amazing thing. I've, I was just back there a few summers ago to teach there. But when I, when I went as a student, actually, uh, uh, Richard Karp came to, uh, to give lectures about, you know, what are uh, T and NP. And, you know, I'd say in, in general, math camp was my first, like, exposure to people who were actually doing mathematical research. And I was, I, I had always loved reading biographies of, of scientists. Like, for example, I had read a biography of a, a Ramanujan by, by Robert Canigal that, you know, made a, a huge impression on me. And so I was sort of, uh, I learned all about this world of, you know, Hardy and, and Littlewood and the whole sort of culture of Oxbridge of the, the early 20th century, right? But to me, it was, it was just as, as remote as ancient Greece, right? It might as well have been ancient Greece or Rome or something. And then I go to math camp and I talk about this and they say, oh, well, you should talk to Richard Guy over there. He knew Hardy, right? <laughs> and and just, just, you know, feeling like I had a, you know, like some sort of living connection to this world of mathematical research it had a huge impact on me. And then, of course, going to uh, CARP's lectures and, you know, finding out about what is this, this P versus NP problem, I think it was also that summer that I learned about, you know, Cantor's diagonalization proof, which is always sort of a, I think, a transformative moment in yeah. the life of any mathematician. <laughs> so, so I mean, I, I always knew that that I liked math. You know, now I thought for a while that uh, I might want to become a software developer, right? But I went to Cornell for my my uh, undergrad after I went to Clarkson for a year. I spent three years at, at Cornell. And at Cornell, I got I got very interested in, in AI research, actually. And I worked with another very, very kind professor there, uh, Bart Selman, who is sort of a, a brilliant AI researcher and, you know, also had a, had a very big impact on me. He was doing these sort of experimental studies of algorithms for solving hard problems like 3SAT that really appealed to me. And sort of guided by him, I also I spent two years uh, working on a, a, a robot soccer project. Cornell entered this this robot soccer competition, which was called RoboCup, and so I was involved in AI programming for the robots, right? And we won for, uh, for two years. You know, I take zero credit for that. Uh, <laughs> you know, we uh, had a 
a huge team of, you know, great mechanical and electrical engineers and, and all these things. But I think that that was a very good experience for me and that that's the, sort of the thing that convinced me that I wanted not to be an engineer <laughs> because uh, because I realized while I enjoyed programming, well, you know, clearly I, I had loved the, the sort of the concept of computer programs ever since I'd been exposed to it, that, that actually managing a large software project, documenting my code, making my code work with other people's code, that these were always things that other people were going to be much, much better at than I was. So this was, was one of the things that sort of pushed me into a more theoretical direction because, you know, I knew that math was, you know, was one thing that, that I always liked. You know, maybe I didn't have the same love of abstraction that, like, all of my friends who, who, who wanted to be mathematicians did. There's a, there's a joke that there are two types of mathematicians. There's the type you know, whose lunchtime conversations go, well, you know, this unbelievably general theorem of, you know, algebraic topology or something. Well, I managed to generalize it even further. <laughs> and then there's the type that say, well, you know, this unbelievably concrete combinatorial conjecture that, that no one can, can prove. Well, I found a special case of it that I still can't prove. <laughs> okay. And... Uh, so, you know, I've always been into the, the latter type. And so theoretical computer science had sort of almost inevitably this immense appeal to me because, uh, you know, it, had, it uh, you know, involves very, very concrete problems. You can phrase them so that they, they almost sound like industrial problems, right? Make this computation run faster. Make it output a better solution to how to organized as uh, an airline schedule or something like that, okay? And yet, to to view them just as engineering problems is very deceptive because it turns out that they have sort of as much mathematical depth as almost anything that you could ask about, okay? And we haven't sort of seen any upper bound to the depth of the mathematical ideas that get applied in, in, in solving these, these, these very concrete problems. You do do theoretical computer science, but the area of theoretical computer science that you seem to do the most work in, at least I know you more from from at least talking about this, I'm assuming uh, doing this, looking at your papers, is quantum computing. Now, quantum computing is something that I have no real grasp on, no matter how many times I read the Wikipedia article. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what uh, quantum computing is, at least the theoretical side of it. So I, I think, you know, at the same time, I, w I was getting fascinated by this theory of computation. Uh, I read uh, an article in the, the New York Times, uh, I think, that said that some guy named Peter Shore had come up with an algorithm for factoring numbers quickly, but that it, were, it would require a new type of computer that, that had, hadn't been built yet, which would be called a quantum computer. You know, and my first reaction was that this is obvious baloney, right? <laughs> this is, uh, people make all kinds of baloney claims about, you know, a super powerful computer. I that, think that's a, that's a claim that, or I think that's a thought that most of us who, when we first hear about quantum computing, quantum yeah, computing things. Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, I knew about factoring as a sort of a famous hard problem. In particular, it's the problem that, you know, no, no one knows if there's a fast algorithm to factor two numbers in a, in a 
conventional computer, right, in, in time that increases, say, linearly or quadratically or something like that with the number of digits and, and the numbers. Okay, so, so, so no one has proved that it's a hard problem, even for the computers of today, but we, we believe it is, and we believe that strongly enough that, for, for better or worse, we base the uh, security of, of almost all of the public key cryptography, which is used on the Internet today, on that belief. So if someone could, you know, have a fast factoring method, this would obviously be a big deal. This would mean that they could steal a lot of people's credit card numbers, among other things. So I, so of course, you know, I, I became curious about it. You know, how how could I not? So I started reading about it, and what I realized is, you know, the first thing you you have to understand uh, if you want to learn about quantum computing is what does quantum mechanics say about about the world. And that's something that had never been clearly explained to me. I mean, I had read lots of popular physics books, you know, like, like any other nerdy kid, I guess. But, you know, they, they said all kinds of confusing things. They said, well, you know, light is both a wave and a particle. Okay, you know, what does that mean? They say that, that Schrodinger's cat is both dead and alive, but then, you know, you open the box and look at it, and then it, you know, becomes either one or the other. Of course, when uh, the popular writers describe it that way, you know, the natural reaction that obviously sounds like just a fancy way of saying, well, you know, you don't know whether the cat is dead or alive. And then you open the box and you look and you find out and then you know. <laughs> so what's the big deal about this? And, you know, why was Einstein so so troubled by this, right, if, if that's all there is to it? fact that that that's that's not all there is to it quantum mechanics is indeed possibly the most remarkable thing which has ever been discovered about you know, the workings of the physical world so so there, there, there's a saying that like no field of science has been better served by its writers than evolution i think similarly you know no field of science has been worse served by its writers than quantum mechanics right you know there's been a long tradition of writing sort of very obscurely about what this theory is all about. It's only starting to be corrected today, I think, with the new perspective, which is offered by quantum computing and information. Okay, so, so let me now tell you the secret of quantum mechanics, and it will only take me a few sentences, okay? Yep, uh, sounds great. Because, yeah, because as it turns out, you know, quantum mechanics is, contrary to its reputation, is an incredibly simple thing once you take all the physics out. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you want to calculate the energy levels of the hydrogen atom or something like that, then, you know, obviously that's going to be a, a bit complicated. And you need to know something about particles and fields and, and energy and momentum and all that stuff. Okay, but if you just want to know what is quantum mechanics conceptually, then it's really just math. In, in particular, what it is, is it's a certain generalization of probability theory. So probabilities are non-negative real numbers, right, between uh, zero and one. And we have certain rules for manipulating them, like to find the probability of some event happening. You can add the probabilities for all the different mutually exclusive ways that it could happen. And there are certain things that don't make sense in, in probability. Like you could talk about a 20% chance that it's going to rain tomorrow, but you'd never talk about a negative 20% chance or much less an I over five chance probability that it's going to rain tomorrow, right? That would be nonsense. But quantum mechanics, essentially what it is, is it's a generalization of probability theory to involve minus signs. Okay, you take probabilities and you replace them by these numbers called amplitudes. 
unlike probabilities, amplitudes are actually complex numbers. And now to find the probability of some event happening, the rule is that you have to take the amplitude of its happening, and then you take the square of its absolute value. So if an event has an amplitude of 1 or minus 1 or i or minus i, then it will certainly happen. If it has an amplitude of 0, then it will never happen. If it has an amplitude of, say, a half or minus a half, then it will occur with probability one quarter. So now, why does this change anything? Well, it turns out that it, it changes almost everything. Okay, And all of the, the things that physicists go on about, right, about the mysteries of the quantum world and the weird, spooky quantum phenomena, all of them, without exception, are just sort of different workings out of the implications of that one fact that now we have to consider, instead of probabilities, these amplitudes, which, which can be positive or negative or, or even complex. So the most famous thing that, 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 that this sort of change in how we think about the laws of nature you know, leads to is uh, called quantum interference. In the double slit experiment, you shoot a photon, say, at a, uh, a screen with two slits on it, and then you would look at where the photon ends up in a second screen. And you find that there are certain places where the photon never appears. Okay, so it, it, it's probabilistic. It sometimes lands one way, sometimes lands one place, sometimes another place. But something being probabilistic or random is not very mysterious in and of itself. If that were all that the, 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 there was to it, then it, it wouldn't be such a big deal. Okay, now the, the mysterious part is that, you know, there are these dark fringes, as it's called, these places where a photon, where the photon can never appear. And yet, if you close one of the two slits, then the photon can appear there. So it's like you've decreased the number of paths that the photon could take to get to a place, and yet that somehow increases the probability that the photon can, can reach that place. And now that is, is enough to show us that there's something here that violates the, the axioms of classical probability theory. So the probabilities are not adding up in the way that we would expect them to. And according to the quantum description of reality, what's really going on is that the photon is going through what's called a superposition of, you know, going through the first slit and the second slit. Now, each of those possibilities for where, how the photon could go contributes an amplitude to uh, the final total, of, you know, of uh, amplitude of finding it in a given place. And now, if the amplitude from the first slit was positive and the amplitude from the second slit was negative, then those two amplitudes can cancel each other out with the result being that the final amplitude is zero, so that you wouldn't, then you would never see the photon somewhere. If you get cancellation between these sort of two ways that the process could have happened. But then you close off one of the slits, and now you get you know, either a positive contribution, a positive amplitude, or a negative amplitude, either of which would lead to a positive probability. So that's quantum interference. Uh, Richard Feynman used to say that you know, if you understand the double slit experiment, then you understand pretty much everything else in quantum mechanics. That may be a slight exaggeration, but basically what a quantum computer would be is sort of the, the, this double slit experiment writ large. So now instead of talking about one particle, which would be in a superposition of two different paths, now we're going to talk about, say, a thousand particles or 10,000 particles, or, you know, let's be mathematicians and say n particles. Now, if you have n particles, say, and each one of them can be in one of two states, either zero or one, 
so you know we'll just think of it as a quantum version of a bit, which is it's called a qubit. Then, in order to describe the state of all n of these particles, we actually need a vector of two to the n complex numbers, because we need to assign an amplitude to every possible configuration of all n of the particles. So. That's sort of a staggering claim. I think if people are not shocked by it, they should be, right? <laughs> because it's saying that in order to maintain the state of even, you know, a thousand particles, let's say, you know, nature off to the side somewhere, you know, has to be storing this list of two to the thousand complex numbers, which is far more numbers than could fit in the entire observable universe if you were to write them out explicitly. Now, in, in some sense, even the same thing is true in, in classical probability, right? If, if you didn't know what state the particles were in, then there would be some probability for each of those two to the thousand possible configurations. Okay, but in classical probability, you always have the option to say, well, really the particles are in, you know, this one particular state. It's just that we don't know which one. But with quantum mechanics, the difference is, that all these different possibilities can interfere with each other. Some of them can cancel each other out. Some can reinforce. So to find the amplitude of some, of some final configuration of, a, say, a quantum computer, you actually have to add up these exponentially many contributions from all of the different possible paths that could have led to that given final configuration. And if, if some of those uh, were positive and others were negative, then they could cancel each other out, with the result being that that outcome would never be observed at all. And so this is what sort of leads to the, the main idea of quantum algorithms, which is, you know, could we sort of get this amazing interference effect to, to work for us, to let us solve some problem faster? The idea here would be that, you know, what if we could choreograph things in such a way that if you looked at a given wrong answer, right, then the amplitudes would all the amplitudes that, that lead to that, uh, to that answer would interfere destructively and cancel each other out. Whereas if you looked at a given right answer, then all of the amplitudes leading to that answer would be in phase with each other. Okay, they would maybe all be positive, maybe all be negative, maybe all be multiples of I. So then when you measured the computer, at the end, that would mean that a right answer would be observed with high probability. So that, that's an amazing idea. But then the question was, you know, did it have any actual applications? So the first people to speculate about this, like in the 80s, were physicists like Richard Feynman and uh, David Deutsch. The one thing that they immediately realized that a quantum computer would, would be good for, uh, could be good for if we had one, was uh, simulating quantum physics. Well, that's sort of the duh obvious application, <laughs> right? Okay, I mean, you know, you can look at these quantum systems and, you know, notice that they seem very, very hard to simulate on a classical computer. And, in fact, that is something that ex physicists have known since the, the 1950s or, or earlier, that doing calculations in quantum mechanics is very, very computationally intensive and, you know, requires very, very powerful computers to even get anywhere, precisely because of this exponential growth of the number of amplitudes. So they, they, they've invented all sorts of approximate techniques that sometimes work in practice. And in fact, Nobel Prizes in physics and chemistry have even been awarded for the best of these calculational techniques. I mean, the problem is that important. But if you could build your computer out of quantum mechanical components, then you wouldn't need any of these techniques because you could just 
simulate the underlying physics of whatever molecule, you know, or whatever you wanted to understand using your quantum computer. So um, you would have sort of a universal physics simulator. You know, actually, you know, as, as sort of tautological as that sounds, I think if we actually ever build useful quantum computers, that will probably still be the main application of them. That's the most useful thing we actually know how to do with a quantum computer, is to sort of simulate quantum processes in nature, which is a huge practical problem. But then from a computer scientist's perspective, the question remained, can you actually solve a classical problem, which is, which is hard. And so this is what Peter Shore showed in 1994, that actually you could choreograph this interference pattern you know, in just such a way as to reveal the factors of a, of a huge integer. This was an amazing discovery because this made it clear that quantum computing actually had some you know, implications for theoretical computer science, right? That if we were interested in sort of what, what can and cannot be computed in reasonable amounts of time, that sort of from this point forward, we were going to have to take, you know, what, what, what we've actually learned about physics into account, right? We can't just think of computers as these, you know, abstract devices. You know, we have to look at what do the laws of physics permit us to do. And so that has sort of led to a whole field, you know, of quantum information science, where we sort of take what we knew, thought we knew about information processing, about communication, about complexity about all these issues, and we see how all of it is affected when quantum mechanics is taken into account. Sometimes things dramatically change. Shor's algorithm is a good example of that. The, the factoring problem goes from conjecturally hard to definitely easy. Other things seem not to change. There's a whole class of problems called uh, the NP-complete problems that even with a quantum computer, we would still not know the efficient way to solve. So this sort of trick of exploiting interference effects does not seem useful for cracking every problem. It's only for certain sort of very specific problems that we actually know how to take advantage of it. Now, one thing, I mean, you mentioned there that, and, and this is something that I did not properly understand until like a year ago, was that quantum computers are not going to solve the PNP problem. And, and that, that was something that I heard a lot in the first time. Now, P versus NP, I, I mean, I mentioned it at the beginning of the show you just mentioned. It. Now, I'm going to mention it again because this was when you first really came into the, the area of the Internet that I spend a lot of time in was this summer. Uh, if, if everyone thinks back, uh, they should remember sometime around August a big hoopla about a possible working proof of P versus NP. Now, we know now that, that that was not true, but you came onto my radar at that point because you made a $200,000 bet about the problem. Well, it was, it was mostly just an attempt to, to get people to stop asking me about it, which, which <laughs> was not successful, by the way. Uh, the P versus NP problem is the sort of the central unsolved problem of theoretical computer science for the last 50 years or more. Okay, basically... What it asks is, if you have a fast algorithm to recognize a solution to a problem when it's given to you, then 
uh, do you also have a fast algorithm to find the solution? People often use the, the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle, that if once you've solved it, you know, once, once someone has claimed to solve it, you can just look at it and at a glance tell whether they have or not. But if someone asks you to solve the puzzle yourself, well, then that may require a, a lot of trial and error just because of the number of combinations involved. This turns out to be relevant not just for jigsaw puzzles, but for thousands and thousands of practical problems. If, if the answer were that P equal to NP, meaning that there was such an algorithm for you know, finding solutions to these problems, then you could break essentially all cryptography, much more than you could break even with a quantum computer. You know, one, one argument I like to give is that, you know, this is sort of manifestly the, the most important problem in mathematics. I think more important than the Riemann hypothesis or Goldbach conjecture or any of these other problems. And my argument for that is that if P were equal to NP, then most likely you could not only solve that one problem, but probably all of the other problems also. Okay. So that that's a millennium that's a millennium problem you really want to solve because it's not worth yeah, exactly. one million. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then you you knock off the other six too, or other five because one of them was solved by Perelman. But uh, uh, what you could do if P were equal to NP was ask your computer, sort of, is there a proof of this? question I'm interested in, say, uh, the Riemann hypothesis, with a million symbols or less in some formal proof system, okay, like some axiomatic system, like ZF set theory. And if P equaled NP, what that would say is that there would be an algorithm to answer that question and to find the proof, if there was one, in an amount of time which increases only like the number of symbols in the proof raised to some fixed power. Okay, so maybe it would be a million steps Maybe it would be a million squared steps, which, you know, is still still something that a computer today could handle. And if it didn't find a proof, well, then, of course, there might be a longer proof. But the proof is so long that we can't even write it down. And then, you know, maybe we, we don't even care about it so much. So any time a mathematical question had a proof of any reasonable length, you could also find that proof in a reasonable amount of time. That's what it would mean if P equals NP, and I think that it would lead to sort of a very different world than the, than the world that we think we live in. So this is why you know most of us believe that P is not equal to NP, but no one has proved that. And we know that proving it is an extremely hard problem. There's been 50 years of research now into how would you prove that certain computations are hard, and we know a lot more about it than when we started. But one thing that, that, that has become clear is just the, the immense difficulty of that sort of problem. Because, you know, you have to rule out sort of not just the, the algorithms that you can think of sitting down for five minutes, but any algorithm that anyone could possibly think of uh, in the future. We can, we can even be more formal than that and say, here are the classes of techniques that have been tried or have been successfully used for the past decade to prove certain computations to be hard. Okay, and none of these techniques can work when applied to the P versus NP question. So there are certain formal barriers that to overcome them, you know, we'll need new techniques. Now I think that, you know, it will happen eventually, but it's it's sort of like we're some mathematicians in the in the seventeen hundreds talking about Fermat's last theorem. There's no reason why it can't be solved eventually, but to solve it would just require the creation of whole fields of mathematics that didn't exist at that time. Yeah, and it, and it turned out the proof didn't actually fit in the margin. No, <laughs> no.
He didn't write that. That's exactly right. Mathematical problems usually, you know, like within a matter of centuries, and they they do get solved. But if if mathematicians have been working on a problem for decades or centuries, then it's a pretty safe bet that there's not going to be a proof that fits in a margin, right? So this is the the type of thing that I would say I get in my inbox, for example, every few weeks or so, or people who think they've discovered solutions to the P versus NP problem that would fit in a margin. There's something that kind of ties with that. It's going to be the the last thing that I'm going to ask you about uh, today. And and that's, I mean, you you mentioned before uh, answering a lot of emails and on your blog, you do a a very good job of of using the blog as a method to response, both of developments that are happening out in the world, but also to respond to comments that your readers themselves uh, leave. And if you if you want to check out it, Professor Aronson's wonderful blog, it's scottaronson.com slash blog. And there'll be a link to it on acmescience.com as well. And I was wondering what, what pushed you to decide to, to use your blog as not only somewhere to put up your own opinions, which is you know, what most people use their blogs for. I know it's what I use mine for. But instead to use it as, as a way of actually corresponding and responding to your readers. Well, that really wasn't a decision that I had to make. I mean, I started the blog for probably the same reason most people do, namely, A, desire to procrastinate, B, desire to spout my opinions about various topics. Then part of the content of the blog is just driven by the questions that people ask me. When people sort of ask questions driven by genuine intellectual curiosity, then I feel some sort of obligation to answer. I mean, you know, after all, I'm, I'm, I'm supported by a, a grant from the National Science Foundation, right? I mean, you know, in that sense, I'm sort of living on taxpayer dime, right? So this is my, my obligation to gauge the public, to, uh, to answer questions that, that people ask me. And so people ask about, uh, has, has this company built a quantum computer? Has this person solved the P versus NP problem? Then I end up responding to it. That's all. It's not that those are my, 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 my favorite topics, but I just wanted to wrap up one, one little thing, which is that this P versus NP problem, I mean, we hope someday it will be solved, clearly uh, hasn't been, but in, in the meantime, what quantum computing has done is to sort of add a new twist to the question, which is now we can ask the question, well, if an ordinary computer can't solve these these hard problems like finding a proof of a theorem or solving a jigsaw puzzle in a reasonable amount of time, then what about a quantum computer? Did that do it? Again, we don't know the answer. And again, we conjecture that the answer is no. So uh, factoring it happens to be a very, very special problem with a lot of very, very special structure, which it inherits from number theory, basically. And when Peter Shore developed his algorithm for factoring, he had to exploit that structure in a very crucial way. Okay, but for sort of general problems involving searching a list of n possibilities, say for a correct one, or finding a needle in a haystack, we actually don't know how to get an exponential speed up, even with a quantum computer. There's something called Grover's algorithm, which is maybe the second most important quantum algorithm after Shor's, which lets you search a list of n items in something like the square root of n steps. So it gives you a quadratic speed up, a square root speed up, but no more than that. It doesn't reduce an exponential to a polynomial. So if you apply Grover's algorithm to a problem that took two to the 10,000 steps before, now it would merely take two to the 5,000 steps. So we know that, that to 
to solve these these NP-complete problems, like finding ma- mathematical proofs with a quantum computer, you're going to need you would need some new idea that fundamentally went beyond this Grover algorithm, and no one knows what that would be. But this really gets into what what my own research passion has been for the last decade, which is you know we can now ask sort of a variant of the the P versus NP question, which is is there any physical means to solve NP-complete problems in a reasonable amount of time? Using classical computer, using a quantum computer, maybe even using a quantum gravity computer, a string theory computer, you know, or some other uh, computer based on as yet unknown laws of physics. And now this is unlike P versus NP, which is a strictly formal mathematical question. This is now also a question about the laws of physics. And my real hope is that studying this kind of thing will tell us not only about computation, but will also teach us new things about physics. Well, I definitely wish you the best of luck in that. And also, really great work with complexity, Zoo. Didn't really have a chance to talk about it, but that's really a fantastic thing. Okay. All right. Uh, Thanks a lot. Yeah, you can go visit it if you want. It's complexityzoo.com. It's an online encyclopedia of about 500 complexity classes, of which P and NP are only the most famous two. And thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Strongly Connected Components today. Sure. It's a pleasure. And that is all the time we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you have any feedback or you perhaps want to suggest a guest for a future episode, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. And also don't forget to check out the blog post over at acmescience.com for this episode, where you can find more links to all the wonderful things that Scott Aronson does online, as well as links to all of our other shows, such as combinations and permutations or sam and dan and and also why don't you just follow us on twitter we're at acme science and you can keep up with all of the shows and when they're released which i guarantee will be a little bit more often i i've just been finishing up thesis work and doing a little bit of traveling here the intro music on today's podcast was The Pie Song by Hard and Firm off their album Horses and Grasses. And the music I'm talking over right now is from SP12. You can find them over at opsound.org. This podcast is a Creative Commons attribution share alike licensed podcast. So you can feel free to use this audio of me and Scott Aronson talking in whatever way you want. As long as you mention that it came from us here at Acme Science. I want to thank you all so much for listening. I hope that you come back for the next episode of Strongly Connected Components.